podcast from the Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter Tara O'Connor, Managing Director of Arc, Pan-African Risk Consultancy Firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from the UK. We both live, breathe and work African affairs and our podcast aims to stimulate ideas among those who share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen. Hi, I'm speaking to you from South Africa, where President Cyril Ramaphosa's personal details have been hacked, sounding something of a wake-up call to the continent about cybersecurity. It was all over the papers over the past few days. We've also had a week of high-intensity load shedding, or power cuts, as they're known, as our electricity provider, ESCOM, tries to repair poorly maintained stock. Busy week at your end, Tara? Well, yes, a very busy week. I'm actually in London at the moment where everybody is um, everybody is all in jubilee fever. Yes. But my attention has been particularly drawn to the Nigerian primaries, presidential primaries, which we've been watching. And it seems that the opposition People's Democratic Party have chosen their candidate. Um, it's Atiku Abubakar, the politician and businessman who served as Olusegu Obasanjo's vice president. So he's already been in office. Mm. But at 76, it's his third attempt and re- represents for Nigerians a little bit of same old, same old politics. Mm. And I think Nigerians, particularly young Nigerians, are craving change. Yeah. Well, we've got a really inspiring guest a little in today's podcast, Tara, a feisty female Nigerian lawyer turned film and stage director, Bolalani Austin Peters. But first, let's take a look at some of the stories that have happened since our last podcast. President Biden has issued an emotional appeal for backbone and courage to confront America's gun lobby after a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Texas. Almost two dozen Russian warships, including missile boats, destroyers, submarines and marine landing craft, are in the Black Sea blocking the southern coast of Ukraine. Those ships have been used to batter Ukrainian cities with missile attacks, but they are also preventing essential grain being exported in what the UN has warned could be a worldwide hurricane of hunger. Five former Transnet executives, including former CEO Siabonga Gama, have been granted bail at the Palm Ridge Magistrates Court sitting at the Specialized Crimes Court. Gama's bail has been set at 50,000 rand. The five former executives have all been charged with fraud, corruption, money laundering and of contravening the Public Finance Management Act. Well, picking up on just a few stories, um, Somalia, and we don't talk about Somalia very often on the podcast, Tara, but they've got a new president. He's Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, and he's been elected by lawmakers for a second time. He was previously president from 2012 to 2017. Now, it's been a difficult time in Somalia. There's been an election crisis marked by infighting, stalling and curfews. And President Mohammed is taking over from the incumbent Mohammed Abdullahi Mohammed, who many of us know better as Mohammed Fermaggio. So the new man at the top, what do we know about him? Well, he hails from the largest clan group, the Hawiya, and he's seen as something of a conciliatory figure. His party dominates both the upper and lower house of parliament, so that might be easier for getting business done. But he has big challenges. One will be dealing with the persistent insurgent attacks of al-Shabaab, 
Earlier this month, there was a deadly attack on the African Union peacekeeping base just outside Mogadishu. And his second biggest challenge, Tara, is a devastating food crisis. Somalia is experiencing the worst drought in four decades. And like in many other African settings, the war in Ukraine is disrupting supply chains, forcing prices up. And we actually are seeing also that Russia is weaponizing food poverty once again, mm. blocking food exports from Ukraine's Odessa port, but also using grain favors as a strong arm, strong arm diplomacy. We've already seen Russia supplying Sudan's coup leaders with grain, for example. Yeah, politics of food is, is fascinating, but but it's also devastating when it gets used in this way. Tara, we've also had three big corruption stories. In fact, three big wins in the anti-corruption world. Tell us about those. Yes, actually, as you say, three big wins. And the first relates to Guinea and the final hurdle in a marathon corruption case filled with intrigue and dodgy dealing. Franco-Israeli mining magnate and billionaire Benny Steinmetz has lost a case at the International Court of Arbitration. He was there challenging the government of Guinea's decision to withdraw his company's rights to the world-famous iron ore deposit at Simandu in Guinea. The court found that there was overwhelming evidence that BSGR, Benny Steinmetz's company, had obtained the rights through corrupt practices. Mm -hmm. And bear with me, Karen, I know that it sounds complicated, but this is where the intrigue comes in. It involved a dying president and the president's fourth wife who took multi-million dollar bribes to make this award of rights happen. And then BGSR sold half of those ill-gotten rights to Brazilian iron ore giant company Vale for something like $2.5 billion in a process known as flipping. Apart from corruption obviously being a bad thing, why should we care about this particular case, Tara? Well, Guinea is one of Africa's poorest countries. And as long as these mining rights are tied up in court wrangling, they're not being developed. And the government only benefits from mining through taxes, royalties and customs duties when iron ore is being produced. And it has to be produced and exported for those royalties and taxes to come through. So the poorest in the the poorest in Africa are not benefiting from one of its richest resources. So Tara, just just to summarize, we've got a court ruling against a billionaire who was challenging the fact that his rights had been withdrawn. The court turns around yes. and said you bought these rights through bribery and not only that, the rights that he bought, he then sold on, his company sold on to Brazilians. So basically the ill-gotten gains were then sold um, illegally, to put it in layman's terms. Yes, they were resold, or at least half of them were resold to to Vale, uh, one of the, again, one of the biggest companies in the world. And that's known as flipping. Yeah. Tara, a second major corruption story also involving Glencore. Yes, Glencore, the world's largest commodities trading company, has admitted paying millions of dollars in corrupt payments to officials in five African countries, Nigeria, Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, Equatorial Guinea and Democratic Republic of Congo. The US Attorney General has said that bribery was absolutely built into the corporate culture and that it came from the top and named the executive attitude as whatever it takes. 
Why is this important? It's important because it's naming and shaming of the key players involved in the bribery and dishing out of huge billion-dollar fines, $1.5 billion so far for the bribe payers, and it's not over yet. Yeah, and we'll continue to keep eyes on that story. Thanks, Tara. Well, enough of putting the world to rights. In a moment, our guest. You're listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and my colleague, Tara O'Connor. Our guest today is a Nigerian lawyer turned stage and movie director who's been acclaimed in a number of publications. She's been in the New York Times, Forbes magazine and countless other publications as a woman bringing Nigerian arts and culture to the world. We'll introduce her in just a moment, but first a flavour of the latest movie she's directed, Man of God, a story of a pastor's son who turns his back on his dad's religious life to enter the world of wheeling and dealing and fraud but ends up with more than he bargained for. It's currently streaming on Netflix. Take a listen. The pressure to just be that person that everyone wants you to be, that, that man of God, it was too much. There is no smoke without fire. Don't! What kind of business are we into? I thought that you were redeemable. You have very little time to change your ways. So the director of that movie, Bolane Austin-Peters, is with us now. Bolane, welcome to The Ark Insider. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Really nice to talk to you. I'm here in South Africa. We've got Tara O'Connor, who I know you've spoken to in the past, on the line from France. Lovely, lovely to have us all together. Hello, Bolanle, and very welcome to The Ark Insider. Now, Forbes Afrique has described you as one of the most influential women in Africa, and your resume is, of course, rather impressive. Tara and I are always very keen to speak to women who've really kind of made their mark on the continent. We're going to talk about movies, we're going to talk about theatre and promoting the arts. But first, can we go back to the beginning? Because you, you grew up in Nigeria and you were following in your father's footsteps and trained as a lawyer. Was that a family expectation? Did you always think that you'd commit your career to working as a lawyer? Um, well, I think, you know, I, I'm not one of those people that plan. I didn't have a long-term plan as to what I was going to become. I happened to study law because I guess because my father is a lawyer and um, it was just the easiest path. You know, you tow your parents' lines, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. So we're about three lawyers in my family you know, children. Um, and um, yeah, I did law. I went to the London School of Economics as well, did my master's, worked with the United Nations. I had a good time doing that. Mm. But then I got back to Nigeria a couple of years later. I didn't particularly enjoy the practice of law anymore. And I wanted to do something more. And my my journey, my diversification into um, legal practice, um, into directing and producing um, was completely unplanned. Mm -hmm. It just happened because I had this place called Terra Culture in Lagos that I founded um, 18 odd years ago. And um, I later on found out that the journey of running a space like Terra Culture for 18 years is it's just akin to producing. Every day there's a production. And in the course of studying them, watching them, enjoying myself, I didn't realize that I was going to school. I just kept learning. You know, I was always watching one play after the other, after the other. And I think that's what piqued my interest. And um, lo and behold, in 2013, I decided to found my own production house. And yes, that's how the journey started. 
I mean, you've you've covered an awful lot of territory there, and I know we want to t- to talk a lot more about terraculture in a moment. But was it literally was it organic? Did you stop becoming a lawyer eventually, um, being involved in the art scene, or did you literally just wake up one day saying, "Had enough of the law, moving on, going to follow the creative world"? <laughs> I mean, was it? How did it happen? Because it's 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 such an interesting story. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I, I wished I could always, you know, sort of like embellish it and make it sound really, really beautiful and sexy. But the truth is, I just woke up and said, I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to practice law anymore. I don't like it. So why am I doing it? And maybe I was fortunate because um, I started out very early in life, having a successful career, you know, as a lawyer with the UN, United Nations. So I, I, I was comfortable and I, I just, I'd, I'd seen what it is to, to have a career. Um, and I, you know, I just wanted to do something that I really, truly enjoyed. And um, the arts was, was home for me. Mm-hmm. It's just home for me. I don't feel like I'm working. It was something of an oasis and of calm from the hustle and bustle of Lagos, I always find. But perhaps you describe the space a bit more and how that evolved. Yeah, I like what Tara said. You know, Tara is a form of haven and that's what it has been for so many people. Um, it's a home to visual artists. We've done over 200 art exhibitions. When artists didn't have festivals, when they didn't have um, international auctions, um, because we have auction houses now coming into Lagos. Mm-hmm. This was their home. So we we exhibited works of young artists, all the, um, what do we call them? Now? The masters, all the masters that you see today in Nigeria, a lot of them, I'm sure 99.9% of them have exhibited at Terra at some point or the other. Um, it's also home to dancers. It's home to, um, um, what do you call them? performers, it's home to musicians, you know, so everybody comes here. And then of course the food, um, we're one of those people that I, for one, I love food. And <laughs> I was one of those people that celebrated Nigerian food from the get go that, listen, we have such amazing food. And I wonder why when I travel abroad, I don't see Nigerian restaurants mm. the way you see Ethiopian yeah. restaurants, Chinese yeah. restaurants, exactly. mm-hmm. but exactly. now it's beginning exactly. to pick, pick up. So we were one of those few spaces where you could come in as a foreigner and um, just come in and enjoy Nigerian food in a nice, beautiful environment. And um, that has been our selling point because of the, of the serenity, the beauty, the earthiness of terraculture, we've been able to attract so many people, including professionals who work in offices. A lot of people have birthed their companies coming to Terraculture to sit, just using the space and getting inspiration from um, the space that we've been able to provide over the years. So I'm glad that Tara enjoyed Terraculture. (laughs) Yes, very much. And I deeply regret not being an early investor in some of the artworks (laughs) that I saw there in the galleries, it has to be said. (laughs) <laughs> yes, they're, they're, all I, of them have become millionaires. Even I can't afford a lot of those works now. I'm like, why didn't I buy these pieces then? <laughs> I'm 100% with you. Deep regret. <laughs> it looks so impressive, though. It, I mean, it, I mean, I, look, I, 
just to describe it, and I, I haven't had the benefit of Tara of being able to actually visit in person, but you know, it, it's like the Pompidou Centre in Lagos. It's incredible. I mean, it's very, very swish. You've got this massive theatre. Um, you've got fantastic rehearsal spaces. You've got the restaurant. Um, it, it, is there really nothing else like that in, in Lagos, just to give us some kind of context? Yeah, absolutely. You know, most um, what you have is standalone organizations like you have a gallery and it's a gallery. You have, you know, you have restaurants, but you don't have anything like Terra is a one space in Lagos that combines all Mm. in one. Mm. And I guess that has been um, its greatest strength in that we're able to combine so many facets and aspects of the arts. So you always find something for yourself when you come to Terra Culture. We have a bookstore, the stores, um, it stocks African literature, mostly Nigerian though. Uh, we have fashion houses here. We have everything. So there's always something for you. And of course we have theater uh, theater every weekend at Terra Culture, different production houses coming Saturdays and Sundays. And then we have... Um, Trace Live, they do music performances. So you see people like um, the Burner Boy, they performed mm, here, yeah. David O, all these guys come here every oh, wow. quarter. Award-winning, yeah. Spending on, yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a melting pot of some sorts for the arts in Lagos, yes. But actually just moving on to sort of the business side of things is that, um, you know, it does, it's very much art and culture is is very much a private enterprise in Nigeria, isn't it? It's not... Um, you know, something like this venture has to be privately funded, does it not? Or has to succeed in its own right? No, you know, in Nigeria, I think that's one of our strengths. Uh, we're resilient because we're, we're battered into being resilient. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's, there's nothing there. You, you find your way, you grope your way through the dark, you school yourself, you, you know, you try, you fail, you pick up yourself, you succeed. So we've been able to um, draw up a model that is not typical. You know, like what you said, everywhere else in the world, you're able to get funding from government, from uh, philanthropists. This is a a solo venture. I started it myself, um, friends and family, what you call, you know, friends and family funding. There was a bank that came into it. So it's all private initiative. It's been run by private initiative. All the movies that you see that I make is all friends and family funding. So it, it builds, it's, it's difficult. It's tough, but it also is exciting because, um, what I'm able to learn, no school in the world can teach you that because they don't even have that experience that we have been able to garner. And um, the experience that we get as Nigerians also allow us to thrive wherever we go, where conditions are right. So yes. um, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. As one of the pillars um, to, to, uh, to Santi, you've also got your own production company. Um, you've had a string of successful award-winning musicals which have come out of that. Some of them have ended up on uh, in the West End of London. Has it been hard to break, you know, the dominance of sort of American and British theatre scene? Because you're taking your productions around the world. Yes, I mean, you know, it's, it's the same with movies. Um, I think people like what they're used to. Mm. Um, it's not been easy. But mm. um, we were very successful when we went to London because I remember the BBC... Um, journalist that interviewed me, he said he found it very interesting that we were able to cut across, you know, our story because they're used to a typical 
demographic coming in to see, but yeah. they saw bankers yeah. from all the, you know, um, blue chip companies, yeah. everybody coming and they were surprised. And I said, listen, our stories are universal. The problem is that we've always, it's the packaging. If mm. you package any story right, it'll cut across. And um, we're able to attract Blacks that are in the diaspora, we always forget that Nigeria is, I, I, I hear that diaspora. one in every four Black person is Nigerian. Mm-hmm. So whether they're in Antigua or they're in Barbados, there's a followership of Nigerian content all over the globe, wherever you find Black people. So we were able to attract all that crowd in London yeah. who were looking for something, a bit of Africa on on stage in London. And um, I think that there is room for it. We've been to, um, Karen, we've been to your country, South Africa in, in Pretoria. My adopted country. And I'm always was still a when, bit cautious. Oh, oh, really? Is your adopted country? It's my adopted country. I'm a Londoner, but no, I would say I'll, I'll, I'll embrace South Africa for, for the good things. Yes. <laughs> I'm being careful about what I say now. Okay. So in Pretoria as well. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> Yeah, it was um, it was really good because it was it, it was some form of um, um, cultural diplomacy. This was at the height of the xenophobic mm-hmm, attacks, yes. uh, you know, going on then, and um, we were able to take our play to Pretoria. It was sold out for two weeks. We were working with the State Theatre, who did a fabulous job. So yes, there is a bit of Nigeria that the world wants to see. And we're hoping that increasingly we'll get that platform to showcase the best of us. It's so refreshing. So refreshing. You've taken on all the big themes, such as uh, Ebola, with your film 93 Days, and your latest production, uh, Man of God, which grapples with the issue of corruption within the church. You don't shy away from anything difficult. Um, is that, um, you know, does the creative arts give you that outlet to confront the difficult issues in an accessible way? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, people say that. I. So I find it difficult to tell a story that I'm not passionate about. And um, I also understand that in a country like ours, it's very difficult for you to speak the truth openly without being maligned or being, you know, in trouble Mm. for your safety. So I understand that the arts has an important role to, to play in telling the truth and also in, in making sure that art, um, gives us an opportunity to to look inwards and and search our consciences. So um, what I did with um, Man of God, I I expected even more (laughs) more vitriolic attack from people. But hey, I'm also careful not to be offensive. So I, I balance it because there are good church people, there are good pastors, but there are those who are just charlatans. And that was why I made sure that there was a character in the movie who said, listen, I'm not going to do this because it's just too much pressure, but I can serve God by being in the congregation and not necessarily being a pastor. Um, So that for me conveyed the message that it's not about an attack on the institution. It's an attack on the individuals who use the name of God in vain. And the same for um, um, collision, which is going to come out shortly, um, which has been, we've gotten 14 nominations so far, which is about police brutality. What I tried to do there was to showcase the backstory of a policeman in Nigeria. 
and to also understand the backstory of an average Nigerian citizen, to see that they're not each other's enemy. The enemy is the system that is not making them or allowing them to thrive. Mm. Again, I was careful not to, you know, be offensive. And I made sure that the message was gotten across so that everybody going in there will come out with a clear understanding of what we're trying to achieve. So, yeah, we try. (laughs) It's interesting when you talk about the sort of exportability of these, because obviously, you know, we we can't talk about film and theatre and arts without talking about Nollywood what's valued at about, what, 6.4 billion US dollars. Um, I know you've already said the aim is to try and tap into a broad audience. And I can tell you, speaking from South Africa, there's huge hunger for Nigerian content. Um, To what extent do you think platforms like Netflix have helped to really elevate South African content? Because they've had a very deliberate um, policy of, of identifying good talent in Africa and trying to give it the backers and the platform that it requires. Has it been difficult to try and convince Netflix to take on your production or were you pushing at an open door? Well, um, you know, I, I tell my team, I have a wonderful team at Terraculture. I tell them all the time that excellence sells itself. Um, so in as much as we don't have the necessary funding, we try to use what we have to the optimal best. So we, all my productions, I haven't had to ask or beg. Mm. <laughs> I've been approached <laughs> to put them on those platforms because they, they look good. And, you know, we've done a good job of telling a beautiful Nigerian story beautifully. So um, Netflix took Man of God as an original. Uh, it's, called, it's called a Netflix project, you know, a Netflix film. Um, when we were also in talks with Amazon, they had acquired some and we're looking to work with them also in the future. So it's very easy to get across to people if what you're selling is sellable. Um, so I think that they are all in the business of getting good content anyways for their own business. So if you have good content, they will approach you. And we're hoping that if we get increasingly good um funding and um, the platforms to push our content out there. I mean, at a point, I know that Man of God was number six in in Canada. It was oh, trending. And in America, gosh. it was also trending. And in South Africa, it That's got, to, top, it got a top you. 10 mm-hmm. in Canada. And I know in, um, yeah, in yeah. Um, South Africa. And I know that it was number one in Kenya. You know, so... Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, we are we're we're looking to export African content, Nigerian content that the world um, can enjoy. You use the word public diplomacy. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because film is incredibly powerful in terms of trying to also break down some of the stereotypes that people have about this part of the world. Yes, it is. I mean, um, the the power of the arts is just incredible. I mean, if a lot of people, I say that I'm a better person for um, being involved in the arts because with every play, with every film that I make, it gives you an understanding of human nature. You've seen the good, the bad, the ugly. And you'll know how it will end because they're all replicated in one way or the other. So I, I, I strongly believe that if literature and the study of the arts was made mandatory in a lot of schools. A lot of um, young children will learn faster than going through the corridors of life. <laughs> That's very true. I noticed that uh, during COVID, you were still producing and uh, delivering output to a, an audience. 
via WhatsApp, I seem to remember. They were, and Zoom, you were an early adopter of the Zoom play, which was quite something. And not daunted even by a pandemic. Say, if Nigeria doesn't daunt you, nothing will daunt you. (laughs) That's true. True. You know, we have an irrepressible spirit. So... We were shut down like the whole world. We weren't, you know, mm. you, you know, you don't do this for the love of the money. We did it for the love of the craft. So mm. we couldn't work. And um, so I told my team, we're not going to sit down idle. We have all this content that we had recorded for in-house, you know, archival purposes, really. So I told them, bring them out. Let's make people happy. Everybody's at home. They're bored. We might as well show the world what we've recorded over the years. It was amazing. So um, a play that I directed, Morimi the Musical, we put it out there in one night. We got over 44 something thousand views, you know? So I said, wow, even with the bad recording, everything, people were just willing to watch something. What? Um, So we were doing that. And then we also did a lot of animation work for government, um, the COVID team. But what we now found out was that we realized that we needed to digitize all of our work. We realized that all those who had movies were able to show their movies irrespective of COVID. Mm. Theater requires social spaces, interaction, et cetera. So I said, guys, we have to move into movie making. So it was during COVID that we started Man of God that we shot Collision Course. And then after COVID, we shot Fumilaya Ransom Kuchi. I got the rights to Fela's mom's story. Fela's mom is an inspiration. She's Mm -hmm. a national figure. Mm -hmm. So uh, we just finished shooting her movie as well. Thank you very much, Bolanli. Really, thank you you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces country risk briefings on 22 countries. You can sign up for these at info at africarisconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Goodbye. Goodbye.